0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Hello, I'm Lionel Burney and I'm with Daniel Freed for this episode of The Cycling Podcast. Hello, Daniel.
2: Hello, Lionel.
1: Where's Richie? Uh, No, Richard Moore this week. He is on holiday. He is in the south of France, I think, on a little end of season break it's that time of year isn't it the road season is finally over and so we transfer all of our attention to indoor cycling with lots of track cycling going on and the cyclocross Daniel I'm sure you're probably multi-screening with all this going on at the moment aren't you not exactly Lionel um,
2: I've been turning my attention to holidays although I haven't uh, been allowed I haven't been allowed one yet but I've been closely following the respective holidays the various holidays. Of the pro riders, you know, the guys who we spend our season chasing around, bothering, pestering. Um, some very, well, I've been very envious um, following or looking at some of their posts on social media. Marco Hallers in particular. Uh, Marco Haller, Austrian rider who rode for Bahrain victorious this year. Next year's moving to Bora Hansgrohe. Uh, he announced some very happy news on, the, on Instagram the other day. He's getting engaged or has got engaged. And um, he's also on holiday in Stellenbosch in South Africa on a, on a fantastic golf and wine resort.
1: Golf and wine resort. This is, I mean, this is your ideal holiday, isn't it? Really? That's where you should yeah. be. Yeah, it looks pretty dreamy. It
2: looks pretty, pretty nice.
1: Do you know if Marco Haller plays golf?
2: Yes, he does. Uh, he's a left-hander. Yeah. Southport took it up um, uh, a, a couple of years ago, and um, yeah, he's um, he's quite a promising up-and-coming player. Actually, got quite a nice swing line. Although I have been telling him he needs to get his weight further forward in the downswing.
1: But anyway, I mean, this is a spin-off series of podcasts that I can feel in the early stages of formation here. Either you you go on holiday with pro cyclists, or you play a round of golf with pro riders
2: I just give them swing tips from afar
1: <laughs> well shall we get into the news roundup first of all as I said the track cycling season is underway and well it kind of came to a climax with the world track cycling championships in the Jean Stablinski velodrome in Roubaix and the headlines from there were that the world four kilometer record breaker Ashton Lambie is now the world champion in the individual pursuit he beat Jonathan Milan of Italy in the final and the defending champion, Filippo Ganna, was the bronze medalist. But it was a good week for the Italians because they won the team pursuit and Elia Viviani won the elimination race. Uh, Michael Merku and Lassie Norman Hansen of Denmark won the Madison for the second year in a row. Ethan Hayter's fine end of the season... Uh, finished with a win in the Omnium and Katie Archibald won the women's Omnium to make it a double for Great Britain. The Dutch absolutely dominated the men's sprinting and Germany's women won six gold medals, which uh, meant that the Germans topped the medal table overall. I said it was a good week on the track for the Italians, but off it less so, because 20 of their Pinarello track bikes were stolen from their hotel in Lille. Um... I mean they're going to be easy to spot it's not going to be easy for the criminals to shift them on ebay and if you're in a bar in Lille and you're offered a gold pinarello uh, like the one that the team pursuiters rode or something with some very elaborate looking 3d printed handlebars probably best to report them to the police um any intelligence on those
2: yet no no I, I would be intrigued to know I mean we've unfortunately seen a spate of these crimes over the last few years um, whole teams having their bikes stolen before races and I would be curious to know I don't know if you've ever seen anything reported about this line. Like how successful the thieves are in dispensing and selling these
1: bikes that they steal well I think track bikes are going to be tough to shift aren't they not least because they're very identifiable especially the gold ones Um, but you're reducing down the potential market i mean i don't want to sound like i'm an expert at shifting hot goods here on the on the black market but it's not as easy to sell on some track bikes i wouldn't have thought the market for those is going to be a lot smaller um, and it's going to be easier to identify them surely Mark Cavendish told a story
2: a few years ago about why, when he and some of his teammates at the British Cycling Academy got their bikes stolen. I think they were track bikes, way back in about 2005, um, and they subsequently saw adverts, I think on eBay, for the bikes in question. They recognised them immediately, and these bikes were being sold uh, out of a house in Moss Side, which is a fairly notorious. Area of Manchester, and they went. Well, they, they piled into the car. I think Matt Bramo's Ford Escort or whatever it was, and they they drove into Moss Side. And I can't remember whether they apprehended the thief or they then got reinforcements from
1: from the police. But they did manage to recover the bikes that had been stolen. I, I thought you were going to say that they bid for them on eBay and just got outbid at the last minute on their own bikes. <laughs> Anyway, the track cycling continues because the inaugural UCI Champions League kicks off um, on November the 6th, coming up pretty soon. The first round is in Mallorca in the velodrome there in Palma. And then there's a round in Lithuania, two in London and one in Tel Aviv before Christmas. Uh, the Cyclocross World Cup has returned to Europe. There was a round in Zonhoven in Belgium. At the weekend, Toon won the men's race and Denise at the women's. This weekend, the World Cup moves on to Overijse, And on Monday, there's the Koppenberg Cross. Now, the Koppenberg is famous because it's uh, the steepest of the climbs in the Tour of Flanders. And the Cyclocross takes place on the climb and in the adjacent fields. It's a public holiday in Belgium on Monday, so big crowds are expected, even though it isn't part of the World Cup. But I'm hoping to be over there on Monday, make a very flying visit over to see the Koppenberg Cross because, uh, well, it's one of, the, one of the good ones to go and watch. But with this crossover between track cycling and cyclocross at this time of year, Daniel, I don't know whether you will indulge me on this flight of fantasy, but... You know, creating the UCI Champions League for track riders is one thing, but I think we need to revive the spirit of the the sort of six-day where you saw the road riders uh, cross over to do track cycling, and maybe with the the fact that Van Aert and Pidcock and Vanderpool are obviously world-class cyclocross riders, maybe there's some kind of um, I don't know, it's a knockout-style, superstars-style um, Madison event where teams of riders. Um, compete on maybe a sort of some kind of cyclocross race and a track event on the same weekend I'm thinking you know you could have the cyclocross at Coxider and the track on the Ghent 6 track in the center of Ghent I mean it it almost practically exists but it's not quite there I can see you're rubbing your temples at this hybrid not a winner for you well yeah be my guest line of you and organize that (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that that may be a little while getting off the ground, but uh, plenty of cyclocross and track cycling coming up. Some other news to recap just before we move on. Uh, James Shaw's transfer to EF, uh, Education First Nippo has been confirmed. And Ian Garrison, the American rider who was was with de Kerninck Quickstep for a couple of years, has joined Legion, or is joining Legion, the LA-based continental team founded by Justin and Corey Williams, It's the budget here in the UK um, where the Chancellor of the Exchequer lays out the tax and spending plan for the next uh, period of time and one of the... uh, items of news that has leaked out from that is that there is a government-backed British bid to host the Tour de France Grand Depart again in 2026 and the suggestion is that stages could be in Scotland, England and Wales. Bidding for the 2026 Grand Depart of the Tour closes early in the new year. Of course it's a few years now since Yorkshire hosted the start in 2014 and uh, we always thought that it would come back again simply because Uh, It was such a successful weekend that, but it's uh, interesting to see that the, the British government seems to be putting some weight behind a new bid. Any figures been mentioned, Lionel, on that, how much it's going to cost them? Yes, Daniel, there are some figures. The Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has said that the government will allocate £30 million worth of funding Uh, to prepare bids for the 2026 Tour de France and the 2025 Women's Rugby World Cup. So not quite clear how much of that would actually go towards bidding for the grander part of the Tour, but um, certainly the London bid and the Yorkshire bid you know on the face of it look to be very successful so in terms of uh, return on investment you would anticipate that uh, they would be able to attract any additional funding that would be required to put on a grande part of the tour again
2: the, the going rate these days is certainly eight figures isn't it uh, certainly north of 10 million pounds uh, the, the the different cities that have held hosted grand departs in the last few years. uh, Sometimes that's been a mix of private and public funding, but I think I remember Dusseldorf in 2017, they talked about about 12 million euros.
1: Expensive old business, but uh, yeah, I suppose the most eye-catching thing was the suggestion that there could be stages in Scotland, Wales and England, but I suppose... Um, that is doable, isn't it? It could move down from Scotland into Wales and into England before moving back over to France. I guess, you know, the Copenhagen Grand Depart is probably the most detached from France, uh, and and they're able to have three days in Denmark with the addition of a rest day on that first Monday. I mean, it means starting the tour on a Friday. Uh, that might not necessarily be needed with um, a, a depart in Great Britain but we will watch that with interest over the coming months the road season finally came to an end for the women with the final world tour race at the Ronde van Dronth in the Netherlands uh, it's usually a spring classic rescheduled to the autumn obviously because of the disruption caused by Covid and Lorena Vibus, who won in Southend and Clacton at the women's tour earlier this month won a six up sprint her DSM team actually got four riders into the final split of seven, which got away on the final climb around 14 kilometers from the finish. And Vibus had a, well, an armchair ride to the finish and and uh, did the job in the sprint. The World Tour ranking was topped by Annemiek van Vleuten. Now, in this podcast, in part one, Daniel, we're going to talk about the latest developments in the men's World Tour is this finally the end for the next NextHash team? What's behind the shakeup at Movistar? And does Tish Banu really want out of Team DSM? And then in part two, with the news that Geraint Thomas looks like he's staying at Team Ineos, while Tim Kerrison, the coach behind so many of their Tour de France titles, is leaving after 12 years. And Roger Hammond is also considering a possible move to join the management team. Uh, one bit of gossip... Is that a rapidly rising star might actually be on his way out of INEOS. We'll discuss that. And then in the final part, we'll try to make sense of the WADA report into British Cycling running a private testing programme in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics and get to the bottom of the substance in the Bahrain Victorious hair samples.
0: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy Management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band. The first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbotts LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at Supersapiens.com for 159 euros.
1: Thank you to Super Sapiens for supporting the Cycling Podcast. Super Sapiens is a system that continuously monitors glucose levels using a sensor patch that sticks to the upper arm and an app that works on your phone and now also on a wearable energy band. Now, the technology is currently not permitted in professional races, although the Novo Nordisk team have a special dispensation to use it because their riders are all type 1 diabetics. However, some people have made the case that riders who get their fueling wrong can end up hypoglycemic in races. That's basically low blood sugar levels, and they can be a risk to themselves and others in the peloton. Here is Asker Jukendrup, the sports nutrition scientist who works with the Jumbo Visma team on that very subject.
0: We all know this, how you, how you feel if you're hyperglycemic. And we all know that it is a lot harder to ride in a straight line. So imagine that in, uh, in, in a full pack racing. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't need a huge amount of imagination that that is uh, like racing with hyperglycemia is, uh, is not the, the safest uh, situation. And we there is a lot of evidence that hyperglycemia affects uh, brain function. So when, when you're hypoglycemic, you can't make the same decisions. You can't make them as quickly. And, and often uh, you make mistakes. That there is a, there's a vast body of evidence that that's the case Yeah, Preventing this hypoglycemia is definitely uh, possible with, uh, with the tool. What we don't know so much is, like, can we also use it to really fuel optimally because even in in a normal range of glucose, there could be a difference and maybe a slightly higher uh, glucose concentration is a little bit better or maybe not. And then it becomes really interesting because we can really use it to fine tune the fueling plans of riders.
1: Well, Daniel, it's that time of year where riders are on holiday or maybe even at their very early get togethers before the new season. But there's still quite a lot of movement going on in the Men's World Tour we saw last week that Victor Campanats is going back to Lotto Sudal from Quebec Next Hash, and it's confirmed that Giacomo Nizzolo is going to join Israel Startup Nation. And well, it does look like this is the end of the road for Quebec Next Hash. Um, we also know that Michael Gergel is going to Alpes in Phoenix. Dimitri Kleiss is going to Antomache, Fabio Aru, as we've known for a long while, is retiring. No news yet talking to michael gogol talking to michael gogol did we know uh, someone told me this morning
2: that Mikhail golash golash the former sky rider has just retired Is going to bahrain victorious as a director sportif has that been
1: announced? i haven't seen that no but um there we are breaking news breaking news um the riders who currently don't have anything set up for 2022 are relatively few but they include Domenico Pozzovivo, Sergio Henao and Simon Clark but after salvaging the team last year Doug Ryder and co. do look like they are very much up against it uh, this time round I, I mean the team's uh, lost the last couple of high profile riders there in Nitzolo and Camponaz and um, it's the it could be the end of of, of a long journey for them started out of course as mtn quebec uh, made their way into the world tour um won milan sanremo with gerald chilek a few years ago a long time ago now and then through the dimension data and ntt pro cycling days before quebec came back as the title sponsors uh, which in itself perhaps said something because uh you know it's it's a it's a charitable uh, it's something with a charitable um, aim at its heart, isn't it? There hasn't been a, um, a glut of, of big-paying sponsors. It doesn't seem. And then, of course, there was the uncertainty about next hash and, and uh, cryptocurrency and the reliability of that. I suppose so. It does look like um, the African team, South African registered, of course, and with uh, you know an, a beating heart from the African continent. It does look like the end of the road for them, Daniel. Yes, well,
2: it's very difficult to see what they've, what they could be selling um, apart from a principle, a concept, a very noble cause. But in terms of riders that they can include in their sales pitch to potential sponsors, um, as you say, Lionel, the the main assets have already found or made alternative arrangements. Uh, Giacomo Nizzolo, who He's really on an upward trajectory, I would suggest. And Victor Kampenutz as well, who has had a new lease of life as a, a classics rider. But they were they were the, the top names, really, the most marketable assets. Um, Simon Clark still, well, he hasn't announced where he's going next year, but he still had a contract, in fact, with Quebec next hash. He was one of the very few riders who did. But beyond that, it was a team that, competing manfully last year or this year 2021 they were very visible in races even if they were not necessarily winning a lot of races um but not too many big names that as i say prospective sponsors will be f- fighting um sort
1: of scrambling to to sign but it's a long legacy isn't it goes back to 2008 really so it's it's not like a team that has um, just been around for a couple of years they they have made it work for a long period of time but that just does appear at the moment that they, that they have run out of road but I'm sure knowing Doug Ryder and his commitment um, it, it possibly won't be the last that, that we see of him if he doesn't manage to keep the team on the road in some form for 2022 meanwhile one of the longest serving teams if not the longest serving team Daniel Movistar Um, Quite a few changes there, particularly behind the scenes. What's been going on with uh, the big Spanish team in the past week or so? Well, there was
2: a a report in El País from a very respected and long-serving cycling journalist, Carlos Arribas, who talked about... These changes that we know have been in the works for a while. Um, José Luis Arrieta, the main, well, number one director sportif, he's always been on sort of their A programme at the Tour and the Vuelta and featured prominently in the, well, much discussed now, um, Movistar documentary, El Dia Menos Pensado, The Least Expected Day. He's been sort of, he'd been eased aside uh, in 2021 by Pachi Vila, who had come on board and the previous year but last year well, in 2021 he was really the main director most notably at the Vuelta and a lot of people saw this as a sign that well Arieta's position was um, being threatened and that he might possibly leave the team that's now been con- confirmed there have been reports that um, he is now taking some kind of legal action or there is some uh, legal wrangling about the terms under which he will leave the team but that, that's one significant change and in Carlos Arribas' piece, he revealed a couple of other um, well, new additions to the team. One being the coach, Leonardo Piepoli, famous and, and infamous. A um, uh, uh, very successful, gifted uh, climber back in the day in the 90s and noughties, whose career then ended ignominiously when he was kicked out of the Tour de France, having tested positive for the uh, latest, the third generation EPO, and he sort of disappeared for a few years, but resurfaced as a coach to uh, a number of top riders. We'll talk about that in a minute. So he's coming to back to Movistar. He rode for that organization as well um, when he, he was a rider. Um, and the doctor, José um, Ibarguren, who again is a name that well, people who follow the sport closely will know. He's a, a doctor who worked for uh, Lotto, Back in the day, um, Quick Step, Sornier Devout, Lamprey had some dishonorable mentions in a couple of doping investigations. And he also, uh, a long time ago, two decades ago, had a brief spell at the team that were, well, formerly Banesto, now become Movistar. But he's going back there this year. And then, thirdly, uh, not, um, well, probably less talked about than the other two, but equally significant, Ivan Velasco who is a coach, sort of aerodynamic expert. Um, he's moving from Astana, and he's a guy who's been credited with a lot of very good results at Astana, particularly in time trials. They had that fantastic day at the Dauphiné in June last year, or in 2021 when Lutsenko did a, a, a superb time trial and a number of the Yon uh, Izagirre as well. and They performed brilliantly as, as a team. And back then, I remember speaking to people and they said that, well, this was a result of some really fantastic work that Velasco had been doing for Astana. So he's moving to Movistar as well. So, you know, we've talked, haven't we, quite a lot, Lionel, in the last year or so about Movistar having to reinvent themselves with, um, well, Valverde... Possibly, probably. We now know he will be going um, at the end of 2022. He's been their talisman. We had the sort of failed experiment of Superman Lopez. We had Landa leaving. We had Nairo Quintana leaving. And Movistar have... or well, they, 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 They've had to start thinking about you know what their next three or four years are going to look like and who is going to carry the torch. Obviously, Enric Mas had a very good season this year, finishing on the podium of the Vuelta. But it looks as though... They've decided the best way that they can make changes or a key department in which they can make changes is well in the coaching department and off off the bike. But controversial because, as I say, um, Piepoli's reputation is not exactly lily white and certainly Jose Ibargure and the doctors is
1: not either. Yeah, I mean, on Piepoli, for those who weren't perhaps following cycling, uh, what hit it now, 15 years ago now, isn't it? Uh, pulls me up fairly short because it feels like yesterday. Um He was part of, well, he'd been part of the Saunier Duval team after leaving Ibernesto as the, uh, well, the Movistar team was known then. So Piepoli joined Saunier Duval and then in the 2008 tour, um, Ricardo Rico won the stage to Banier de Bigor one day and Leonardo Piepoli won the stage to Hotacam the next day and I think Juan Jose Cobo, their teammate, was second on that stage to Hotacam uh, that Piepoli won and then, uh, well, what was it, two, three days later um, it was announced that they had tested uh, positive for the banned drug Cera, uh, it was, wasn't it? You said the third generation of EPO, which, which it was, a blood-boosting drug in the real sort of this was the heavy duty hardcore days um of doping and drug busts and uh well it it brought the entire tour de france into disrepute didn't it for for those couple of days it was just the latest in um you know a succession of very high profile and very damaging doping scandals and really piepoli has been off the radar um, certainly as far as I'm concerned since we we saw him at the Giro a few years ago didn't we and you, you said we he was did. coaching younger riders
2: yes Lionel and and well that was I think in 2017 or 18 we saw him down in Puglia where he's from Alberto Bello and I interviewed him we had him on the podcast that day and he actually um, funnily enough that day he spoke about Unzue, um, Eusebio Unsué, the manager of Movistar and his why well, he indicated that they still had quite a close relationship and that they talked quite a lot and they talked about doping as well and Piepoli had sort of referenced conversations that he'd had with Unzue um, Unzue telling him that the it was out of the question that riders could even you know, contemplate any doping now because the sponsor would pull out immediately and, and things had changed significantly in the last 10 years and they had to be really hot on this now. Also that day, I remember Piepoli talking about well, his work with young riders. I mean, he's been involved with junior teams down there in Puglia. And it came to everyone's attention as well that he was coaching one of the more promising Italian riders, um, certainly back then and still today, Davide Formolo. But he he's actually been coaching quite a number of World Tour riders. I think he he began his this sort of second life as a coach, um, working or giving a bit of advice to Purita Rodriguez a few years ago, and then he started working with Dani Moreno, Andre Amador, and um, Formolo, as I said, and then the last couple of years with Alberto Bettiol, the. Um, Tour of Flanders champion in 2019 wasn't it so he has been around as you say Lionel um, unbeknownst to a lot of people and he has said all the right things in the sort of rare interviews that he's given he's talked about you know how he had to look his son in the eye um, and talk to him about his own doping and you know he he certainly gives the impression of of someone who's made a 180 degree turn Um, and obviously we we hope that is the case. Um, as far as um, Ibarguren, the, the doctor, is concerned, as I say, he is someone who's never gone away in spite of um, these sort of question marks about him and fairly robust evidence that he was involved with doping you know, 10, 15 years ago, certainly at Lamprey and then after that um, at Saunier Duval. In 2012, he joined Quick Step, and that coincided with a real upturn in that team's f- fortunes. 2011 was at the sort of low tide mark of where they they'd ever been as a team in terms of victories in the season and then suddenly they made this big leap forward in 2012 and since then have been the most prolific team in the world for every season however there were there were a lot of other things that changed in 2012 for that team as well it was it was also the the season when a lot of the remnants of the HTC team which prior to that had been the most winning team in the world tour a lot of the remnants of that team moved to quick steps so Rolf Aldag director sportif and um, Brian Holm director sportif there were various other members of staff who who moved over as well so that team really had a bit of a me- metamorphosis was Ibarguren central to that or um, was that incidental coincidental we're not, we don't
1: know but quite a change at Movistar and I wonder what uh, what you know, the, the culture of the team will, will change in some sense. It does feel a little bit like uh, Arietta is the fall guy. I mean, obviously from my vantage point of having watched the Netflix documentary, and obviously we've heard from Arietta himself that he that he felt um, a bit hard done by, and that he did he did look like I he, was, he was. I think yeah, we all he was think put, that put out on a limb, wasn't he? And uh, you know, made made to look like the uh, the one that wasn't really holding the reins tightly enough. But perhaps that was actually the case. But uh, quite some changes at Movistar. it uh, be interesting to see what sort of impact that has on the road. Because not a huge number of changes to the actual personnel in the, in the squad uh, over this winter.
2: No, not, and, and I think I said it a few weeks ago, Lionel. I don't know whether you agree, but in the whole superman lopez Farrago fiasco I felt they were the biggest losers in the sense that he was a rider that they needed um they they needed him as a second as a second prong to the attack in you know whether it was the Vuelta or the Tour and actually you know he was pretty successful in the Vuelta winning the the Queen stage really to El Gamonitero and while Mass has been reliable and he's looked solid and he rode a brilliant Vuelta I don't think that he necessarily on his own um can live up to the the sort of legacy of that team in Grand Tours. I think they did they did need a second card, and of course, Marc Soler, whose whose sort of potential or the what everyone had said about him being a potential Grand Tour winner that that had started to to really fade, and people had really stopped believing in his potential to be a Grand Tour contender. However, they've also lost him, and 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 not necessarily replaced. Either him or Superman Lopez. Although they've, you know, they've taken on some good riders this year with um, Gord Kay and uh, Aramburu and a couple of others. Yeah,
1: supporting type riders rather than, you know, an, an additional foil. Um, it would be interesting to see how Mass takes that because it's a very different proposition, isn't it? Being one of two very well placed riders in the GC, or being the the one with all of the expectation and hope on uh, your shoulders, knowing that. Um, if, they, if there's any faltering, um, the whole team's hopes evaporate with uh, with you faltering. Um, it will be interesting to see how that works out. And just talking of team cultures, uh, let's move on to Tischbeinut because it's been reported by Dutch media, uh, specifically Wheelerflits. Um, that Banut wants to break his contract with Team DSM early. Now, he wouldn't be the first rider to leave the team in curious circumstances. Marcel Kittel, Warren Barguil, Tom Dumoulin, Mike Matthews and Mark Hirschi have all left the team in recent years. Ed? Edward turns as well. There we well. go. Um, now, if you listen to Richard's Friends of the Podcast special, A Team Apart, which uh, came out at the start of the year, um, you'll get some insight into some of the different ways that Team DSM operate. And obviously, it works for some, doesn't work for others. Um, but what do you make of this? Because Benut, uh, highly, highly rated, has had some excellent results in the past as one Strada Bianca, but by his standards, was a, a a disappointing year I mean 5th in Paris-Nice at the start of the year and 7th at Liège-Bastogne-Liège so started promisingly but then crashed on the opening day of the Tour de France and uh, I think crashed again and then um, pulled out midway through and then uh, raced pretty lightly since then uh, the Olympic Games and the Benelux Tour and some one day races um, but he's not sort of you know, moved on another quarter turn has he this season? And perhaps he holds the team responsible for that and, and that's why he may be looking to go somewhere else.
2: Yeah, he's, he's a rider that has a, who has a lot of abilities and that could be to his detriment at times. He, he doesn't really have too many weaknesses, in fact, but he, he's not easily pigeonholed as a classics rider or a Grand Tour rider. Or, and um, sometimes... Uh, it, it, I suppose it might be difficult for teams to know how to deploy him best. But um, as far as he and Sunweb, what were Sunweb um, is concerned and what are now DSM, it is curious because he was a rider who seemed to be very happy there from the word go. And that was that was borne out by the fact that he, um, about three or four months into his first season, he actually extended his contract. Um, I think he was on a two-year contract and he, he extended it, I think, more or less after Paris and East in that very first season. So, he seemed to be very happy. And then, you know, what, what I gather is that he's always someone who has been um, quite inquisitive and he questions, you know, what he's told to do by coaches. And he's quite autonomous as well in terms of um, defining his own program and his, his own coaching and so on and so forth. And we know that DSM, well, they have this reputation as operating in a very prescriptive Um, manner with their riders you know we hear things about the homework the riders have to do they have to fill out questionnaires at the end of every race about how they have felt they get sort of spreadsheet printouts every night in team hotels about how their bike is set up and so forth and and you know we've always said and I I don't think it's any real secret other people have said it as well that this is perhaps what has jarred with some of the star riders it's probably a system that works great with with um, youngsters who are affected in effect still being coached and still learning how to be professional cyclists but once riders reach a certain status and they feel that they you know they know how how the business works how um, best to manage themselves then they might see this as a little bit um well condescending I suppose some of them might have felt in the past or or at least too much of an imposition don't know whether that's what's happened with Taish Benoit, but we're, we're hearing that he's pretty determined to to leave, Do you know what I heard, Lionel? I don't know if you um, have ever heard this or you think there's anything to it, but someone suggested to me, a, a pretty well-placed source in Belgium, um, talks about the fact that it could possibly be part of the DSM or this team's business model, that if you look at all of those riders, Marcel Kittel, Warren Barguil, Tom Dumoulin, Michael Matthews, Mark Hershey leaving early, that in all of those cases, that they've had to be... Bought out of their contracts um, by the new employer, the new team, the team that's that's eventually signed those guys. You know, I, I guess um, in a lot of cases they've been seven-figure fees to, to pay up uh, a rider's contract, buy them out of their contract, and that that money has presumably gone into the you know the team coffers. Um, we, we've said this before about. Well, at a lower level, Gianni Savio's team, you know, he sort of sold, in effect, Egan Bernal, Ivan Souza. But we've never really contemplated that um, possibility in the world tour or for a world tour? Yeah,
1: I think I've said in the past, it's, it's sort of transfer fees by stealth, isn't it? Um, and, and if it suits all parties, why not? It's just that when these things get reported, it sounds like, you know, there's been a sort of catastrophic breakdown in relations and that, you know, it's, it's a divorce rather than a, a parting of the ways. And uh, I, I mean, I'm sure there would be no shortage of suitors for... Uh, a rider of Tish uh, qualities but um, yeah it's who who would be able to take on that contract and perhaps pay any compensation to Team DSM if they were to uh, request it or demand it but we shall watch and see Jum- if you had to place a bet where, Jumbo- would, where would you say you would go Daniel
2: well the two that are being mentioned are UAE and Yumbo Visma I mean Probably not coincidentally, the two sort of main contenders for the Tour de France, one would think. And you know, I was thinking about their respective squads and how they, how suited they are for the Tour de France route that we saw unveiled last week or ten days ago. Um, you you could argue that Jumbo-Visma have not replaced George Bennett, or there's been no like-for-like like replacement, and he in fact has gone to UAE. Although they've signed Rowan Dennis. They've possibly got Tobias Foss, who was um, the best young rider in the Giro, coming into their Tour team. That's a possibility. And then, as far as UAE are concerned, I I, want, I did wonder when they saw, when they discovered that there would be a cobbled stage in the Tour de France this year. Um, they've got a lot of... Well, they've really beefed up in terms of their climbing power. George Bennett is part of that. Um, they signed Micah this year, and they've signed other riders as well to help Pogata in the mountains. But they could possibly be a little bit light um, in the flat stages. Um, you know, Mikhail Bjerg is a very is a very solid sort of all rounder, good on the flat. And um, Matteo Trentin, I guess, will come into the tour team. wasn't in it this year, but primarily to help Pogacar on the cobbles. And then Langen as well, the Norwegian rider. But otherwise, they might think that Benoit would be a good investment as someone who could do both jobs, be good in the mountains and um, and possibly help Pogacar on. The well, call.
1: I think uh, UAE Team Emirates may well come up in part 2 as we discuss some of the changes at Team Ineos. Shoot shoot the cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN which is a virtual private network to help keep you safe and secure when you're online. And this is something that comes in particularly handy for me when I'm traveling for work because often we're using hotel Wi-Fi or a hotspot in a restaurant or I'm tethering the laptop to the phone to uh, get online. And those connections are not secure. And so NordVPN means that my information and data is all safe from hackers who might be looking opportunistically to steal some data that they can could use for nefarious reasons. It's not that I'm thinking that they're going to be hacking into the system to steal the podcast audio files before we've had a chance to upload them and edit them into an episode. It's just that if I'm on my online bank account for example I want to be 100% sure that that information is safe and secure and NordVPN offers me that security. It's also really fast, so you don't feel your internet connection slow down when you've got the VPN switched on. And you can protect up to six devices, so your laptop and a phone, smart TV, iPad perhaps, or even your router at home if you want to. And one other little bonus when I'm travelling abroad is that I can use NordVPN to basically watch things like the BBC iPlayer or Sky Sports occasionally or Netflix just as i would at home so that's uh, that's always quite welcome too and nordvpn is offering some big discounts at the moment if you go to nordvpn.com tcp or use the code TCP, you can get up to 73% off your two-year plan, plus four bonus months for free. Uh, This is a limited time offer only, so go to nordvpn.com slash tcp now. The details are in the show notes, and they're the 30-day money-back guarantee, so if NordVPN is not for you, there's no risk either. Before we discuss Ineos Grenadiers, Daniel, some breaking news for friends of the podcast or people who are thinking of signing up as friends of the podcast or who knows people who may well be cancelling their subscriptions in droves when they hear that at last the introducing Lionel Burnie episode is on the friends of the podcast feed I think you were the first um, of the cycling podcast hosts to be interviewed weren't you Daniel quite a long time ago now pre-pandemic
2: yes um, but the introducing Lionel Burney uh, episode is very much in. It's queued up, Lionel, on my jukebox. He'll <laughs> yeah, be getting an airing very soon.
1: Uh, Richard's feedback, Richard's review was that Orla did a great job at interviewing me and that there was an awful lot of Lionel Bernie. So if that sounds like your thing, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and sign up as a friend of the podcast. What's the biggest,
2: um, what's the biggest revelation, would you say?
1: Um... Oh gosh, I don't know. Do you know it was recorded not far off a year ago? I think we recorded it uh, remotely from one another, Orla and I, in early December last year. And be it's time taken, for the sequel soon. Yeah, it's taken ten months to persuade me to uh, prise it out of my fingers and uh, get it onto the feed. But um, no, it's just a it's, it's how how I got into journalism and interested in cycling and how cycling and journalism met. Um, and a few detours along the way Uh, if anyone wants to listen to that they can do so now another couple of episodes to listen out for on the cycling podcast regular channel the latest episode of service course is called one hour three minutes and 59 seconds in the life of The one hour bit refers to the new women's world hour record holder, Joss Loudon, who Lizzie Banks has spoken to. And the three minutes and 59 seconds bit is a reference to Ashton Lambie, who became the first rider to break the four minute barrier in the 4000 metres individual pursuit or individual time trial on the track. Lambie is, of course, also the new world champion in the individual pursuit. So Lambie and Loudon both feature in the latest episode of Service Course hosted by Tom and Lizzie, of course. And the final episode of the season for life in the peloton is the retirement episode. And Mitch Docker put this together over a period of months leading up to his own retirement. He spoke to eight riders who have all hung up their wheels before him about what to expect from life after the peloton. And I think he found making this episode a really helpful process as he approached his own retirement. And it's a really intimate, revealing and insightful listen. And coming on the back of his penultimate episode with us, the... Uh, story of his final race, Paris-Roubaix, is a really fine way to round off the season and, sadly for us, bring to an end our two-year collaboration with Mitch. Fortunately for him, and unfortunately for us, he's been made an offer he can't refuse and one that we can't match. So, life in the peloton will continue in some guise as a podcast after this year. But sadly, it's the end of our collaboration. Uh, But I'd like to thank Mitch for everything he has done over the last couple of years. I've certainly enjoyed working with him on every episode that we put together. And I've really enjoyed watching him stretch the boundaries a little bit in some of the episodes that he's made. The particular high point for me was when he got the band back together and told the story of the team time trial victory at the Giro d'Italia in Belfast in 2014. Uh, that was one episode that I will always uh, think of very fondly when I think of our collaboration. But I would like to thank Mitch for the last couple of years and wish him all the best in retirement and hope that he knows that he will be a best friend of the podcast forevermore. Thank you, Mitch. Let's move on to Ineos Grenadiers because it does appear that Geraint Thomas is staying with the teams, a former Tour de France winner, of course. He's 35 years old Surprised. now. Um, I suppose. I suppose I am a little bit I thought that perhaps Ineos grenadiers would want him out more than perhaps he would want to go uh, and that's not being cruel or harsh it's just that as a you know as a commodity i would have thought his value has dropped quite dramatically uh, over the last 18 months and so it would be interesting to see what sort of role he plays in the team hugely likeable and respected and a, a good influence at, on young riders i would have thought and with the influx of young riders into that team this winter um and the emergence of of the likes of ethan hayter uh, yeah, perhaps it, it makes sense on that level but it's difficult isn't it you have to uncouple you know geraint thomas as a, a contender in the big races um from your mind i think and and, and perhaps look at this as a, a sort of final phase of his racing career He's also one of those guys
2: who will cost more, you would imagine, to any Aston, than he would cost to, than he would be able to ask from another team because there is a, there's a premium um, that comes from what he sort of represents to a British market for a British team.
1: Indeed. Uh, arguably, uh, the biggest change is the departure of Tim Kerrison, who came to Team Sky as a very well-respected and an and innovative swimming coach, and has been the the man behind all of the Tour de France victories for Bradley Wiggins, Chris Froome, and Geraint Thomas at Team Sky and Team Ineos. But uh, he is departing the team. Are you surprised by that, or do you think that uh, perhaps Tim Kerrison has done all that he can? And, and just kind of repeating um, himself in cycling or particularly with uh, with this particular team. Well, it's,
2: it's difficult to know, Lionel. We we don't have too much sort of inside information about what led to this decision, this parting of the ways. Um, what has been said suggested it was a sort of natural conclusion of the relationship. We'd always really associated Tim Kerrison with, with Froome, hadn't we, that we'd always sort of... Fr- Believed that Chris Froome was his, um, well, he he was his sort of magnum opus. He he turned Chris Froome or helped turn Chris Froome from this rider who was sort of struggling in the early years of his career to uh, a world beater. You know, using all of the the sort of science, as you say, that he brought from swimming, a lot of innovative ideas about. Periodization, reverse periodization, and that he sort of reinvented coaching to a certain extent in, in cycling. So uh, it wouldn't shock me to see Tim Kerrison resurface um, at Chris Froome's side at Israel Startup Nation but I don't have any, any uh, indication um, or any solid
1: information to that effect at the moment. It's a curious period for Ineos Grenadiers this so, though isn't it? Uh it does still feel like a, a team slightly in transition and I mean I was thinking this morning about uh, you know the the way the landscape has changed over the, even the last so six months. You know this time last year Jim Ratcliffe who is of course the the, the man behind uh, the funding of Ineos Grenadiers a very wealthy man with um you know huge business interests um but this is a this is a team that, that has his uh you know the company's name all over it it's uh, i suppose daniel you would you call it a it's a it's a vanity project in a, in a way isn't it it's a it's a it's a pet project it's a passion it's a toy it's not necessarily one that's um being done with return on investment as uh, the number one uh on the list of priorities it's because of his passion for professional cycling that that he got involved but a year ago his biggest competition was a Dutch supermarket whereas now the landscape has changed and uh, he's competing with oil states um, particularly UAE Team Emirates who have really beefed up with their investment now that uh, Tadej Pogachar well he won one Tour de France and, and showed himself to be a, a man who could add a second which he duly did and the man to beat for well, we've said it before about others, haven't we? Egan Bernal, a couple of years ago, looked like the man who was going to win four or five in a row. Um, but uh, Tade Pogachar has doubled up. And you can see why they're pumping so much money into building a team around him. And Ineos Grenadiers are, are sort of going in a slightly different direction, it seems to me. They've possibly got some
2: difficult decisions to, to make. And does this... This saga, and perhaps that's too big a word, um, but this, well, this story about Egan Bernal and his future has sort of been rumbling in the the, the background. And there were, there were stories, rumours a few weeks ago about him being unhappy there, and even possibly wanting to break his contract. I've sort of been giving run, running updates. Um, what I've been hearing the latest is that the talks are very much underway about him renewing his contract, and they still, you know, they still believe he's the guy. Certainly in the short to medium term to compete with Pogacar and Roglic for the, the major tours um, and, and then they've also got, well the, the rider who was their their best um, option this year as far as competing with Pogacar was concerned and Richard Carapaz who's going into the last year of his contract and there's, there's still nothing going on there uh, as far as a renewal for Carapaz beyond 2022, there are no talks I believe currently happening um, between the two parties so yeah it's really difficult to know what their future is going to look like and, and also just in terms of the cultures in the team we talked a few times this year about well the, the sort of Spanish you could say the, the kind of Latin um, part of the team's soul now with Bernal and his coach uh, uh, Artecha and you know they've they signed various riders like Andre Amador a year ago we thought he was coming from Movistar and he was going to be a key cog in the Grand Tour machine he didn't ride a single Grand Tour for Ineos this year and then you know they signed Adam Yates Adam Yates probably their most consistent performer uh, in 2021 And Theo Gegenhart, the Giro champion um, last year, struggled um, a little bit this year, had various issues, health issues and so forth. But that was also a question for me as far as also as far as the staff was concerned, you mentioned Roger Hammond possibly coming on board Lionel, but there are. It seems like there are decisions to be made on the, the direction the team is is going to go in. Um, do they double down and try to put everything behind toppling Pogacar, or do they sort of diversify and look at themselves as a, a different kind of team, which with broader goals, you know, and, and target the classics more and target other Grand Tours more? You know, Tom Pidcock is is a rider who we thought could step into the breach as. And, and be their best, their best hope in the Grand Tours and in other races in the next few years. But Lionel, I mean, I've been hearing rumours about Tom Pidcock over the last few hours, in fact, and and his future. Go on. Well, Lionel, I was speaking to a very well placed source earlier today who had heard about a, an, an extremely strong interest on the part of Bora Hansgrohe for tom pidcock um Hands grower is sponsored by specialized that's the bike manufacturer and well i think that some of the interest is coming from specialized we know that pidcock um has competed in mountain biking this year and cyclocross and specialized obviously have a um, very strong interest in all of cycling disciplines and and there's a there's another link line or which um came to my mind that Red Bull energy drinks are actually now an official partner of bora Grower, And they had to become an official partner because bora Grower have undertaken this experiment with the, the ski mountaineer, Ski mo, um well, former, I think he was second in the World Championships last year, Anton Paltzer, um ski mountaineer sky runner who this year became a professional cyclist and completed the Vuelta and he's the only guy in the peloton the pro peloton road peloton that you'll see with a Red Bull logo on his helmet um but in order for that to happen they Red Bull had to become official partners of Bora Hansgrohe Tom Pidcock also has an agreement with Red Bull doesn't he um which hasn't carried over thus far into his road riding but we've seen Tom Pidcock with a Red Bull helmet in cyclocross races, haven't we? Um, that is one possible, another possible hook. But, yeah, I do believe that there is a serious, serious interest here. I contacted Tom Pidcock's agent, Andrew McQuaid, about this earlier today. He said, no comment. Um, which, oh, done done deal then. Well, don't it do. can mean a lot or <laughs> it can mean very little. Pidcock has a contract, I should point out, with um, Ineos Grenadiers that, should expire at the end of 2023
1: it's interesting this though isn't it because there are now um a handful of riders who are you know almost edging themselves head and shoulders above the rest in terms of um their you know interest and and desirability i guess for the a handful of the biggest teams and i suppose the biggest question for not just Ineos Grenadiers, but for all the teams that have an eye on the Tour de France, is how to topple Tadej Pogachar. And I suppose uh, if you if you're talking about a shootout between you know extremely wit- rich um, team backers, or you know in in the case of UAE Team Emirates or or Bahrain um, teams that are, that are effectively sponsored by states, the competition for this handful of riders uh, could well end up becoming a case of who has got the biggest checkbook. I mean, what would stop uh, Ineos Grenadiers and, and Jim Ratcliffe from just saying, well, we actually want Tadej Pogacar as our well, team leader we, we and trying this. to buy him out?
2: Well, speaking of rumours, we had this from um, the, the cycling's rumour-monger in chief, Beppe Conti, the Italian journalist, last week who, to, to widespread scorn and derision, said on Italian state television... Uh, Rye Television that Ineos had been trying to sign Tadej Pogacar and they'd been offering him 18 million euros a year to buy him out of his contract from um, UAE. Pogacar's agent Alex Carrera subsequently denied this and as I say, I think most people took it with a pinch of salt. But it did get me thinking, Lionel. I mean, you know, if Ineos are putting in 40 million a year, 50 million a year and the raison d'etre of the team is to win the Tour de France, then, you know, would spending half of that on one of only three riders, two or three riders in the world who can or are going to win the Tour de France, would that be a terrible investment? Is that a
1: ridiculous idea? Well, I think it does show up the, the fact that the, the the elite at the very, very top end is, is detaching itself from you know, the rest of the World Tour and that the playing field is in danger of becoming you know, even less even. Um or more uneven than it's ever been, because uh, there are a handful of teams that do have the uh, the finances to you know break the, 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 the what are the current um, accepted levels of of payment to riders and when you start you know I, I know it's only rumors, but um, it would take that sort of money wouldn't it to to sign. The rider who you would have to think is the, the hot favorite to win the Tour de france, but that's that's the sort of disparity in the sport as well isn 't it because the Tour de France is so important to to the teams it's the the thing to win
2: yeah and you, you think about the resources that are coming into or, or, or potentially at the disposal of of some of the individuals and well you, states in some cases who are investing in cycling. Um, You know, recently we've had the the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United and people talking about 300 billion um, that the investment company or investment group behind that takeover might have at their disposal or that they have currently invested in various things. Well, you know, you make a comparison between cycling and football. I mean, 18 million a year for Tade Pogacar. I'm just looking at a league table of Premier League salaries that would put him around about, you know, 12th or 13th place in the current league table, speculated league table of earners in the Premier League, Football Premier League. Edison Cavani, £13 million. It's around about that mark. Um, Paul Pogba, £15 million. But of course... You know, with a professional cyclist, as you say, Lionel, you know, you, you're talking about trying to sign the one, the single rider who could win the Tour de France. And then, you know, presumably you could make up the rest of the team with a combined, you know, four or five million, um, which is not the case in professional football. I mean, it'd be, pretty, it'd be pretty pointless, wouldn't it, buying Paul Pogba and then surrounding him with, you know, 10 other players from sort of Stockport County, which would not necessarily be the case
1: in cycling. Just before we move on from INEOS Grenadiers, Daniel, uh, we, should, we should award the Stratospheric Sivakov Prize um, to the rider who completed the most race days in 2021 in the, among the men's World Tour riders. It was Cesare Benedetti of Bora-Hansgrohe who started his season at the Classica di Almeria in mid-February and he completed both the Giro and the Vuelta and only failed to finish four races uh, the final stage of Itzulia, the Italian national championships and uh, Trevalli, Vallescine and Il Lombardia. He completed 1478 kilometers and on the Sivikov factor, that's 3.8% of the way to the moon.
2: The Sivikov factor, that was about altitude meters. That was...
1: Oh no, I've you changed know, these, it now into were... distance. Oh, okay. riding, actually riding to, no, it's riding to the moon now, literally okay. in a okay. straight line in a straight line to the moon so yeah just uh, yeah just another 300 odd thousand kilometers to go to ride to the moon um how many, how, many, yeah.
2: how many light years before i live this down and we can stop talking about this <laughs>
0: <laughs> the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science
1: thank you very much to science in sport for supporting the cycling podcast you can get 25% off all of science in sports range of sports nutrition products at scienceinsport.com with the discount code siscp25 we will put that code in the episode notes just in case like daniel you struggle to remember it but it's very simple when you reach the checkout just enter the discount code siscp25 and get 25% off Now, this is one of my taste test segments. I'm going to give the Lemon and Lime Beta Fuel a go today because I'm going for a bike ride of around two and a quarter hours. might end up being two and a half if I put in another little loop. Um, But it's quite cold today, and although I'm wrapped up warm, I'm going to be burning energy, uh, keeping myself warm. And I'm also on my winter bike, which is a fair bit heavier than the one I've been riding lately. So I've gone for the Beta Fuel. Each sachet... Of the powder contains 80 grams of carbohydrate um, so I'm going to be fueling and hydrating at the same time with the beta fuel but the most important thing is what it tastes like uh, at least it is while you're actually out on the bike anyway and uh, so I've mixed up a couple of bottles of the lemon lime flavor beta fuel uh, just mix it with water give it a good shake till it's well mixed and then let's have a taste Well, it's light, it's refreshing, there's a very clean citrusy flavour and a pleasant combination of sweetness and sharpness and it's not at all tart and makes it very easy to drink on the bike and especially when it's warm, it's really, really refreshing. In fact, it could easily pass as a regular lemon-lime cordial and I wonder how it would go mixed with sparkling water, although I'd want to watch the carb intake when I'm not actually exercising. But uh, I give that one a thumbs up. It particularly appeals to my palate, that one. Uh, if you'd like to get 25% off the beta fuel or any of the other products, go to scienceinsport.com and use the code SISCP25. Daniel, in this final part, we're going to discuss a couple of stories that have broken in the past week. The first of which is that the report by the World Anti-Doping Agency into British Cycling and the United Kingdom Anti-Doping Agency um, which centers on the uh, fact that British Cycling was basically running a private testing program for nandrolone in 2011 in the run up to the 2012 Olympic Games uh, using non WADA accredited labs to basically screen athletes for nandrolone, which is a banned substance. Now that was not allowed, and although the WADA investigation has confirmed that quote potential wrongdoing by both individuals in both British Cycling and UCAD at that time had taken place neither UCAD nor British Cycling will be facing any punishment and then at the weekend the Mail on Sunday had a story uh, which alleged that an anti-doping official had arrived to test a rider during the training camp prior to the 2012 Olympics, just as that rider was preparing to go on a training ride and annoyed at being asked to give a sample for anti-doping purposes, uh, said that they would prefer to go and do their ride. And it was apparently agreed that the rider would carry on with their training ride, but stay in sight of the tester who was following in a car. However, as you would expect, Uh, riding on the open road, being followed by a car. It wasn't long before the rider was out of sight of the tester. And uh, although when the rider returned after an hour's ride and provided a sample, uh, this incident was not officially recorded. But the Mail on Sunday has uh, got wind of it. Um, But it wasn't recorded officially. And so no action was taken. UK Anti-Doping has refused to comment. And Shane Sutton, who was, of course, part of the British Cycling and Team Sky, organisation at the time was quoted in the mail on Sunday saying that there was no wrongdoing. Um, There's also been a story, Daniel, about uh, Bahrain victorious riders and a substance called tizanidine, which is a muscle relaxant showing up in some hair samples that were taken earlier this season. Uh, First of all, what do you know about that? Well, this was
2: a a curious story in the sense that... um, the People have joined multiple dots together and deduced that this probably related to the, the raid of the Bahrain Victorious Team Hotel in, in Po at the Tour de France because there was a paper published in a scientific journal saying that three, or I think it was a team of three researchers, had been asked to analyse some hair samples that were taken at an international three week international cycling race in in france taking place in france and they had found this traces of this substance tizanidine so bahrain are pretty aggrieved well that people are have joined those dots together and assume that it's them but we all knew that the the raid took place and then there's been a lot of commentary on on what this drug is whether it should have been used um the people were quick to look up the sort of indications for this drug and they saw that it was sometimes used for multiple sclerosis and that was obviously pretty shocking but then further investigation has revealed and you know various websites and and newspapers have been interviewing experts on this and that um, it's per- perhaps less shocking than than that first indicated because uh, tizanidine, well, it's a short-acting muscle relaxer. It works by block blocking nerve impulses that are sent to the brain and it could possibly be used, well, to help sleep and to help with just sort of general aches and pains post-stages and that, in fact, when it is used for people were suffering from multiple sclerosis, it's used mainly for, for similar reasons, for for muscle tightness that is a sort of collateral effect of Um, multiple sclerosis
1: well we should make very clear that this substance is not prohibited by the world anti-doping agency so it's not it's not banned on the list it's not even on the list of substances that requires a TUE a therapeutic use exemption so it's just a medication as as it stands at the moment and um, you know maybe this is the early stages of of something more significant but I suppose when um, you put the words hair sample Doping, and then the name of a substance that nobody's terribly familiar with. It, it's logical that people will join the dots.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mentioned, you know, the the coverage of this story that there has been across various websites, newspapers, and and so on uh, in Europe. the The Italian website ciclo Web did a bit of a deep dive into what, exactly what it is, and they interviewed or they had a, a neurologist at the Molinete hospital in turin write a column about it and he said well, i'll just take one quote from the, the piece that Cristian perone wrote we can safely say that it can't be used as a doping substance in the sense of performance enhancing in fact the muscle relaxing action and the side effects dizziness being quite common would impair the sporting performance it is probable that the substance could be used post-race to alleviate pains and muscle tightness resulting from long hours on the bike it doesn't seem to me that this constitutes doping and neither can i imagine that it could be considered doping in the future
1: it appears that the reason that the french authorities took an interest was because of the the law which bans uh, prohibitive substances from being used uh, by athletes or being taken into the country or being transported around and it's not something that can just be bought in a pharmacy it has to be prescribed so um, perhaps that is where um, you know the, the authorities' interest has, has, has come from um, what do you make of the, the, the wider report into what British Cycling was doing well, 10 years ago now i mean it feels like yesterday but um it's uh, the london olympics um is well nine years ago and the private testing that british cycling were doing to effectively screen their riders for uh, a banned substance nandrolone was 10 years ago now i mean what does it tell us about what was going on then and and how do we interpret what's going on now
2: i mean there are a couple of there are a couple of points to this i I would say that the actual screening or the desire on the part of british cycling to do this screening does not necessarily surprise me because substance nandrolone we know has been implicated mentioned as a potential contaminant in in sports nutrition products for a long time and there have been there have been bans overturned because athletes have successfully argued that that was the case and this actually derived this whole thing and the desire of British Cycling to do this screening supposedly derived from uh, an athlete having traces of uh, a metabolite of Nandrolone in their urine and British Cycling wanting to get to the bottom of this and make sure it didn't happen again in the future. So, you know, I can I can well believe that that might have been innocent um I think it seems to me they were confused about what was allowed and what wasn't allowed in terms of screening I mean screening pays, makes people nervous because you know even if you go back to probably the most famous doping program of all time um, the East German dope, doping program you know under communism this was something that they did systematically they would test athletes and if anyone Um, showed up metabolites or or substances that were banned and you know they were taking a lot of banned substances then they would be withdrawn from international well from competitions and consequently no one would test positive so it makes people queasy for that reason Um, and it seems to me that british cycling didn't necessarily realize that they couldn't under any circumstances really, um, do this testing without sharing the results with the National Anti-Doping Organization, which is UK Anti-Doping. But beyond that, Lionel, I think what I take from it is the, the sort of coziness, the inherent coziness in the relationships between these national federations and the anti-doping organizations the NADOs in this case UK anti-doping and I think that's something you probably find in it in a lot of countries and I think it was definitely you can tell from the emails that um, the that WADA examined and that have been leaked through the press you can tell there was a certain coziness to the relationship there was an informality you know they were pinging emails back and forth asking questions you know give this person a ring email this person and that in itself I think is is a little bit is troubling um, it's troubling when you think about all the other noise and and buzz and allegations some with more substance than others that, that have been around British Cycling and and Team Sky, and so on and so forth. I mean, both UK Anti-Doping and British Cycling pretty have pretty much sailed through this investigation. Or it could have been a lot worse for them. Um, but it, it strikes me that the should, well, the, one of the conclusions should have been, could have been, that um, the 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 relationship between British Cycling. And UK anti on a fundamental level needs to be re-examined uh, and reviewed. Not just relating to ten years ago, but even even now, that's something that should be constantly reviewed and constantly scrutinised. Another sort of postscript that I would add, or another just for footnote to that line, is when I was again to go back to the screening when I was looking at this and thinking about this. Um, it made me wonder about that that period in professional cycling, um, sort of between sort of two thousand and six and two thousand and ten, probably the the worst time we've ever had in professional cycling for scandals and and um, doping. And there were these initiatives taken, which I think were actually kind of key in terms of cleaning up the sport, in terms of the message they sent out. But there were a number of initiatives taken by teams to test their own riders and to as they said at the time, add a further layer of control, a further layer of scrutiny. We remember, well, various teams did it. Telecom did it. Garmin did it. Astana did it. CSC did it. And when Lance Armstrong announced his comeback to professional cycling in 2000, well, he was coming back in 2009, he announced this, program of testing that he was going to do with Don Catlin which um, was discontinued pretty early um, Don Catlin pulled out of that but they were actually quite different amongst themselves because I, I checked this that CSC they had uh, a program that was being run by a gentleman called Rasmus Damsgaard he was doing the testing at a wider accredited um, laboratory and he was sharing the results with UCI but that wasn't the case of all of them and and one of the problems in this instance with British Cycling was that They chose to do the screening at a lab that wasn't WADA accredited and they weren't systematically, well, they weren't sharing the results at all with the UCI or with WADA.
1: I think that's what makes people nervous, isn't it? Because um, it's funny, isn't it? We're going from that period, I remember very well, um, when the teams were reassuring people, we're testing our riders, we're going to know what they're doing, we're going to, you know, um, we're going to be making sure that no one is doing anything that they shouldn't be doing. Um, but then if you look at it from, you know, the other side, you know, it it, it could be flagging up issues um, internally so that they don't trip a wire when it comes to the you know, authorised tests uh, in and out of competition. And, and that's where it, I suppose uh, that it gets... Less transparent, murkier, perhaps. The issue is with a substance like nandrolone; it's a threshold drug, so um, staying within, you know, under the limit, so as to not, uh, you know, trip the wire, um, whilst training and uh, preparing for competition. You know, it just opens up more questions than than it, than it solves, especially as the the testing was being done. Privately, and the results weren't being shared. And I suppose, if getting fairly long in the tooth at all this now, I remember that period 2011, 12. You know, the the probity of everything that British Cycling was doing um, was 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 you know the PR surrounding it, the the reassurances given, whether that this was a an era of you know utmost cleanliness. Um, a break from the very recent past as it was then, and and all of the the hangover from the Festina affair and the Operation Puerto doping and everything that are plagued um, road cycling and the Tour de France. This was this was all supposed to be different, um, and it kind of ten years on doesn't yeah it, it obviously is different, but it just feels like it's uh, you know steps along a road rather than a you know a, a you know some kind of ideological um you know halcyon clean break i guess it would be my uh sort of rather more emotional take on it i suppose from the point of view of of uh finding these things out a decade later it's always it's always how things were in the past and we've moved on now and then then uh, you know in 10 years time we'll perhaps be talking about this era and finding out what may and may not have been going on now it's uh everything is all revealed and discussed and debated um, with the benefit of, of, of sort of some rather cloudy hindsight, it seems to me.
2: What? Well- well it's an interesting as we've been saying for the last couple of years it is a very interesting moment on the timeline the evolutionary timeline of cycling and doping you know these stories i think bring that into focus and we've had you know recently the mpcc the movement for credible cycling they they put out a press release the other week where they talked about the the fact that their tests or the tests on that have been done on um, tramadol which was seen as a big problem in the peloton three or four years ago have revealed that that sort of whether it was a plague or a scourge um, has almost been defeated that there's negligible amounts of of that painkiller are now being used in the peloton they also said that they are they will no longer be doing cortisol tests so basically doing a second level of of test to see which riders um, might be using corticosteroids as of next year because the the rules are changing on um corticosteroids they're becoming more severe um all injected corticosteroids are going to be banned from 2022 and you know i I read an interview the other the other day with uh well soon to be former italian national selector davide cassani saying that doping cycling has effectively defeated doping it's um minimal if it's happening at all professional cycling you know we've had another season go past with no major doping scandals at the top level of the sport the world tour and yet um you know against that backdrop we see stories like this the wider investigation into uh, british cycling uk anti-doping the 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 bahrain raids at the tour de france and um, it's difficult to know where we are at on that evolutionary timeline, and, and in which direction professional cycling is is trending. Um, you know, is it is it are we seeing the, the fruits ten years later of a real culture change, which probably began with this, you know that that um, three or four year period where teams were really pivoting and the culture within teams was was changing. Um, or is this simply a, a sort of lull as people have been scrambling around um, in the dark, in the shadows to, to find the next frontier and find the next way in which they can circumvent the rules? Um, again, Lionel, as you say, I think we'll probably find out in the next few years and, and it will be a few years after the after the fact, after the
1: event. Yeah, I do think just lastly, um, context is everything and it's important to keep these things in uh, context with one another I mean we've talked at the start of this episode about Leonardo Piepoli uh, joining the management structure at Movistar and you know that was the the, the doping that he and uh, Ricardo Rico engaged in with uh, uh, CERA EPO I mean that was among the most egregious examples of, of doping in the Tour de France that I can think of it was coming you know, 10 years after the Festina affair, one year after Operation Puerto, or two, sorry, two years after Operation Puerto, one year after, um, you know, Michael Rasmussen was kicked out of the tour and Alexander Vinukurov, um was kicked out of the tour. Um, you know, it was at a time when really uh, everyone should have been, you know, heading in the opposite direction quickly. And yet there were individuals who were still taking these heavy duty substances uh, in competition. Yeah, here we are with a story in the media about uh, a muscle muscle relaxant that is not on the WADA code now as I said at the start of this discussion it might be that this is the the first step on a, a road towards um you know banning that uh drug from competition but you know that is for WADA to work out and for experts to kind of decide it, it, it just always does seem to me sometimes that um doping stories all carry the same weight when actually there are degrees of of wrongdoing even if ethically the decision making to break the rules is is always the same the the degree to which those rules are broken and the substance with which they are broken are not all equal so i don't know where that really goes but you know we are talking about um you know even in 2011 we're talking about a screening program to flag up samples that may have had nandrolone in that that is a degrees removed from you know the industrial blood doping that had been going on um, prior but um, by the same token it, it shouldn't have been happening um, and they were they were doing something that that wasn't allowed by the rules so um, you know it's it's opaque really but We will no doubt return to this subject at a later date, Daniel. Um, We should probably wrap things up there. We should. (laughs) (laughs) Well, until next time, when we will be rejoined by Judith Chalmers, or or rather Richard Moore from his uh, holiday. Um, Until then, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you.
2: To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Adam Bowie.